Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody and welcome to Classic American Movies. This week we will be discussing the 2001 MTV Movie Award nominated for Breakthrough Female Performance, Best Kiss, and Best Musical Sequence, A Knight's Tale. Now I am your host Christopher Kelly and joining me is always my girlfriend. Miriam Kroll. Hi everyone. And Miriam, this is actually one of your favorite films of all time, isn't that correct? Yes, that is correct. I love this movie. I can't even say how often I watched it. Whenever we came up with doing this for the podcast, I think I haven't watched it in like 10 years, which I find very surprising, honestly, after I thought about that. But back in the day, I mean, it came out in 2001. I was like 12, 13 years old. I had a big crush on Heath Ledger. (laughs) He has been in the... 10 Things I Hate About You shortly before that. Uh, another guy I had a poster of in my room. But, um, <laughs> I just love this movie. It's just, it's funny. It has great music. Just the combination of music, the action movie, and love and everything. If you watch it, I think you just, you're in a good mood when you finished it. And that's what I love about it. It starts out seeing Heath Ledger going to do his jou- doing the jousting match after his what what is what is his the guy that dies in the beginning and Heath Ledger takes over his role. I mean he's the knight and Heath Ledger was working for him and then the knight dies and he takes over. So we see that Heath Ledger then takes over for this for this guy and we start out by hearing We Will Rock You by Queen, which I think was awesome. <laughs> In the commentary, the director, Brian Helgeland, says numerous times that he was not aware that Queen did not exist during this time. (laughs) So the movie takes place around around 1370. And the reason being is that Brian Helgeland, he started out studying in English and he fell in love with this time period. And after doing his deep research on Geoffrey Chaucer, who was played by Paul Bettany, he discovered that there's a time period in 1370 for about six months where Chaucer is nowhere to be found. So he wrote this movie kind of like a love letter to that time in Chaucer's life. Because he said, hey, who knows if he, if he did this or not? So he created this whole story based around this six months when Chaucer is nowhere to be found. And there's a lot of historical accuracy and a whole lot of inaccuracy in this movie. But it's all meant to be in fun anyways. So anyways, Brian Helgeland, he wrote this movie based on this time period. And he said that he created the music for this part because 
He said, it's the 70s. So, you know, 1970s, just like 1870, which is just like 1770 and just like 1670. You know, every, you know the, the, the styles are going to be about the same. Guys wearing mullets, big mustaches. Why wouldn't they be listening to Queen? <laughs> As he puts it in the commentary, he says, this movie's kind of like a Reese's peanut butter cup. You got chocolate in my peanut butter, peanut butter in my chocolate. You got Queen in my Chaucer. You got Chaucer in my Queen. <laughs> I read in an interview that when Heath Ledger read the script for the first time, and when he read about the initial appearance of Weera Ruggie right in the beginning, <laughs> he nearly like closed the script and he was like, what is that? <laughs> but he started reading it again and then he came to appreciate his approach. And yeah, it's basically a fairy tale and doesn't pretend to be anything like that. So in a fairy tale, everything can happen. <laughs> yeah. He says that multiple times as well in the commentary. Uh, Brian Hugelin says that this movie is supposed to be like a feel-good version of that fairy tales for the nowadays crowds. And he put in that music because that's what he grew up listening to. That's what the majority of the people who are watching this, they probably listen to Queen and BTO and War and all those different bands. So he put them in there to kind of incorporate it. And he actually wrote that into the script prior to it. Like you said, that whenever Heath Ledger first read this, he was like, what the hell? So <laughs> that was how all the producers felt as well, too. There was a lot of uh, producers coming into this movie and saying, well, this doesn't work. But it did work, in my opinion. And also, in the beginning, to go with We Will Rock You, the band that's playing during before the jousting match, they actually were playing We Will Rock You. However, it didn't look as good as Brian thought it should. So he just wound up putting the actual song over it. And I read in an interview with Helgeland that he did with actually a German news magazine. First, Sony wanted to re-record the whole soundtrack with bands like NSYNC and so on. And he was like, that's not going to happen and that will not work. So he fought for it. At the end, they had like a test showing. And he said, 80 people said that they liked the music. 60 people said the opposite. And so Sony didn't know what to do, so they just kept it. It could go for or against. I mean, in this type of movie, I think you know what you're getting into, such as with jousting. I think if you put music that was popular at the time, I don't think audiences would have reacted to it as well as they have. And also what Brian says is that he wanted to put that music in there to see, to show people how the youth of that time period would have responded to it. Very much how the youth of now, that they responded to clean like how people in that time period would have responded to it. There's music that you, in 1370, the youth of that time period said, oh, well, that's my parents' music. I don't listen to that anymore. And it's the same thing now. Like, whenever we get older, our kids are going to say, oh, well, my dad liked System of a Down. System of a Down is for old people. I think this makes the movie very unique because you haven't had that before, a medieval movie with such a soundtrack. Yes, uh, A Knight's Tale, I think it worked beautifully. So, Miriam, take it from there. Where, what happens after we've discovered that Heath Ledger, who plays William Thatcher, wins and he gets his helmet smashed, <laughs> which is based on a real thing? Uh, apparently, the, there was a real knight during a jousting match where his helmet was so smashed in, he could not open it. <laughs> so when they went to give him his award, he couldn't really see what was going on. So he had Brian Helgeland wanted to put this into this movie. One addition to that. I mean, honestly, this saved him. Because if he could have lifted it, they would have seen that it's not the actual Sir Hector. So honestly, it turned out well for him. First of all, the idea was that they just do this match 
because they haven't eaten in a couple of days. With the prize they got, they then uh, exchanged it for money and they could have gone eaten, could have gone back home. But Heath Ledger convinces his two friends that this is their opportunity. Or he can be a knight and he can actually take part in these competitions. And so after a little back and forth, they actually start training so they, with the money they had from the prize, they had a little bit for food, and then the rest they invested in training material. This is really funny, like how they train it, because obviously this is complicated. If you think about it, you're sitting on a big horse, you're holding this long lance, you have to balance yourself, and then you have to, you have a little, like a very small target you have to hit. After they were convinced, they really supported him. And so they create this person. Now I'm not sure. <laughs> It's all right. Did did they create the person, or did when ever Chaucer came in, did he create Sir Ulrich? I believe it was when Chaucer came in, he creates Sir Ulrich, who was a real person. Then, I'll get into that in a minute. I wanted to add a little bit to what you said there. In the history books, there was a character named William Marshall, who was a real jouster, and he was the one who had his helmet smashed in so bad he couldn't lift it. And supposedly, his brain was rattled so bad that he was not the same after. Uh, to go along with the back and forth before they realize, before the gang of dudes, Heath Ledger playing William Thatcher, Mark Addy playing Roland, and Alan Tudyk playing Watt, they do a little back and forth and they realize, yes, let's, let's, let's go on with this. But at that moment, we realize who is the real leader of that group. It is not William. It is Roland. He's the most experienced one. Exactly. I mean, later on in the movie, we learn whenever Heath was starting to work with this knight, Roland was already there. So he's like maybe double his age. Probably. I'd like say whenever he's supposed he to be start. in his 40s. I think so, it's, that's probably fair. Uh, during that whole argument discussion, in the commentary, Brian points out, he says, their motto is, guts first, technique is second. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, there's a person hanging in the background. That is an actual person. That was not a dummy, which was not very good in my opinion. I think they could have easily used a dummy but they wanted to have authenticity, so they had a real person hanging there. And the way they do that, when they're not actually killing a person, obviously, you know this. They have a, a rig that goes down the person's back, and it's usually hanging around their stomach, kind of like a belt. And they said at the end of the day, when they were done shooting this, that guy was not happy. <laughs> they didn't realize they would be hanging for about 12 to 16 hours. And also, to go along with that little segment, at 8 minutes and 58 seconds... I pointed this out whenever Miriam and I watched this movie the other day. You can see crew members walking in the background. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's going on, but it looks like we're moving on to another shot. So you can see two guys wearing all black. That's the immediate giveaway that it's a film crew. And then they cut away to, I believe, Roland talking. And then when we jump back, you can see briefly it looks like horses and crew members moving in the background so i believe that they're moving from one scene one setup to the next no one points this out in the commentary i'm assuming because they didn't really you know they didn't want anybody to really notice this but no one's really noticed this other than people like me whenever they decided to do this and they're traveling to the next tournament they met jeffrey chaucer who actually is naked. So they meet him while he's walking naked. Stark Raven nude. First yes. day of shooting. Paul <laughs> Bettany, ladies and gentlemen. It was interesting about Paul Bettany. He comes from a long line of theater. His parents were in theater. He immediately became in the theater. And that's why he's so good. He was, he was no slouch. He came right out of the barrel, kicking ass and taking names. He was born in Harleston uh, in London, England. 
to the theater family. His father, Thane, sadly passed away in 2015, and his mother, Anne, retired from acting. His grandmother, Olga Gwynn, her maiden and stage name, was a successful actress, and while his maternal grandfather, Leslie Kettle, was a musician and promoter. And that's all taken from IMDb. He'd been doing various different plays and movies up until this point. Uh, he was then in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, A Beautiful Mind, Master and Commander, The Da Vinci Code. And he was the voice of Jarvis in Iron Man. And then he became Vision in The Avengers. That explains why his performance is, I would say, arguably the best out of everybody. I mean, he is probably the greatest hype man in movies i love his long strings of speeches we meet up with jeffrey chaucer who was a real person as we all know from uh going to high school we always had we all had to read canterbury tales he meets up with the gang butt naked in the middle of the road he lost everything including the clothes on his back because he's got a problem with gambling and they were just like confused or maybe curious why he's walking around naked and by at this point they don't know that he's a gambler he's telling them that he was robbed <laughs> and it wasn't their plan to like take him on on their team but he tells them that they need proof that William would be a knight and that William comes from I think four generations of noble people of blue blood in his ancestry. Yeah, that's how it happens. Then he starts to be a part of the team and he creates all these documents. And then it moves on to the tournament where it turns out they're all really nervous. Does it work? Does it look good and authentic? But yeah, it works. And I mean, back in these days... You could do that. You could do that because who knows? There was no internet to look up your face or they didn't even know who you were as long as you have the proof and you have a noble name like something with sir basically <laughs> then yeah you were a knight and you could compete during that scene paul actually had a hell of a time remembering all the names that william had descended from and they had to paste the names or tape the names right above the judges that's why you see that shot that's just below that that was also the day that the producers came to visit the set and they heard about paul bettany and his wild and his amazing background and then they come to set to see him perform. And then they have all these names taped above the judges. And the first thing the producer said was, are you sure this guy's real? <laughs> <laughs> also during that scene, William is on horseback going through the town. They were supposed to play son of a preacher man. But Brian said that he didn't want to overload the audience with music. Because you got to think he was hitting the audience immediately with Queen. Then you got to follow up that with War. And then you follow it up with this. He's like, it was this, just one song after the next. He really wanted to space it out. But the actors fought for him and said, eh, can we put this in? Because it's so perfect. Because if you watch this the scene again, if you listen to Son of a Preacher Man, or at least have it in your head while he's walking through the town, it matches perfectly. But I do agree with Brian. That would have been a little bit of an overload with music. And then that's also where he meets Jocelyn, played by Shannon Sousaman, in her very first role on the screen he uh, refers to her as foxy but they were going to use the song foxy lady by Jimi hendrix but they couldn't get the rights to the song from his estate so because it's a great setup for that song i've said that multiple times but they couldn't do it and jocelyn is you don't really know who she is but she's a noble person but she's different than they usually are like she actually she jokes around with the priest she doesn't have, like, the normal language. Well, she was supposed that... to kiss the ring, and she goes, ooh, that's nice. that was actually an improv line. And because she was supposed to kiss the ring, she improved her line, making a joke out of it, and they decided to keep it in because it really did work with her character. 
uh, something interesting about um, Shannon Salsaman is that she moved to L.A. to become a dancer. That's the reason why in the beginning of the movie, whenever her name is on the screen, you see the girl dancing to Queen. Brian said he wanted to put that in there as a nice little cheeky nod to her. How she got discovered is even more interesting. She was at a she was with her friend who was a DJ for Gwyneth Paltrow and Jake Paltrow during their joint birthday party in Hollywood. And Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No one other than Brian Helgeland was at that party, and he thought she was really neat. She thought he thought she was cool. She had a great atmosphere around her. And he said, you know, are you an actress? And she said, well, I do commercials. I'm more interested in dancing. And he's like, I have a role in this movie that I think you would be perfect for. And that was this movie. Quite literally, right after this movie, her career just skyrocketed off. She was in Rules of Attraction, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. She was in the TV show Dirt, which I don't know if not many people really remember that one. That was the show with Courtney Cox where she was like the head of TMZ. It was an okay show. One Missed Call, she had a role in Sleepy Hollow and Wayward Pines now, and she currently has three movies that are slated to come out. So she, she quite literally, if she did not go to this party for Gwyneth Paltrow and Jake Paltrow, her career, who knows what would have happened. Anyways, during the first fight, this is the, the sword fight, and after Jeffrey's speech, whenever he wins, that's whenever we hear in the song by BTO, Taking Care of Business, which I think is very accurately put into this film. Jeffrey gives this amazing speech, but no one cheers. In the original screenplay, the crowd was supposed to erupt into a cheer. However, most of them didn't speak English because we were shooting in the Czech Republic. And no one says anything, which adds a little bit to it because everyone's kind of like, who is this guy? Why is he doing this? And then Mark Addy, he just goes, yeah! And then the whole crowd erupted. And it works perfectly for this movie. Yes, and this is one of the few tournaments where he actually does um, swords and jousting. And maybe it's the only one. I can't remember right now. I mean, he's really good in, with the swords. That's actually his better thing. But you win the tournament if you win jousting. So he wants to concentrate on that. He then he fights and i mean actually he does a really good job for him not knowing what to do but you're also introduced to count adamar there where he's talking to jocelyn he's making uh, attempts to whatever convince jocelyn that he's an attractive man or he's uh, rufus suwa who plays count adhemar said that he really didn't know how to do that scene Rufus said, well, this is exposition. And Brian said, well, think of it as sex position. And Rufus said, ah, got it. (laughs) He's a good looking guy. He's a great actor, but he never had that oomph, I guess. He didn't have the star power that he really wanted to have. I guess you would call him almost like a Billy Zane type of character. And in The Guardian, in the article called Rufus Sewell, Almost Famous, he kind of made jokes about this. This was an article that came out in March of 2013. And the author, Leslie Spencer, wrote, uh, Rufus had said, People talk about opportunity knocking, but the gate was always swinging in the breeze before I got to the door. I was the lead-in interview with the vampire until Tom Cruise decided he was interested. I was in the Wings of the Dove with Uma Thurman until that got canceled. 
I was in Shakespeare in Love with Julia Roberts until that fell apart. So I've been close a lots of times, but I think it's been the making of me as an actor. He pauses. Yes. Years of compromise and disappointment have added depth to my acting. He lets out a big laugh. Well, I have to think something, don't I? <laughs> so he meets Jocelyn and he's flirting with her and saying, like, I'm the better choice. And he makes fun of William's armor and says, well, I think my grandfather can now walk around in his armor and not feel ashamed. <laughs> so we establish this enemy relationship between William, Sir Ulrich, and Ademar. Now that he teases him because of his armor, which is like very cheap, then because of his technique, he doesn't do it like everyone else does it. And then they face up in the first match, Jocelyn gives him his scarf to wear as a token, which of course adds to the enemy relationship. And then Adamar also, he teases him and he has this quote, which plays an important role throughout the whole movie. Same as the relationship between these two. And he says to him, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. In the end, this comes back up later on, but this is just, I love this quote. I mean, honestly, I, this was the first time that I watched it with Chris, that I watched it in English. So <laughs> I didn't know this in English, but in German it's the same. And I could, someone could wake me at 4 a.m. in the morning and I could say this quote. <laughs> It just kept in my... And I did wake you up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And she said, Chris, why are you waking me up at 4 a.m. in the morning? And I said, you've been weighed. You've been measured. And you said, smack. <laughs> <laughs> Then we move on from there. This is where also at the first match it comes out with the gambling problems. So I have to pay them. We also introduce to Kate, who fixes the armor and who actually wants to make him a better armor later on does and this is the best product placement ever in a movie that actually he puts the nike sign the nike, <laughs> into yeah. the, the nike side into the armor and so it moves on i mean we have the five people now and then he goes to matches he decides to not do sword matches again he only does jousting and so he's introduced to all these matches one important match we should mention is he fights against a knight, which a lot of other people have refused to fight against, which is why, uh, which is because this knight is actually Prince Edward. And although he knows that, he starts to fight against him. And when the knight says, well, he's done, he does not finish him, but he just, they just ride against each other. The other knight resigns. And so this also establishes a relationship between these two, which later on in the movie is very important, what Prince Edward plays. Kate. The blacksmith. She is based on the real laws of the time. Based on the blacksmith's guild. Women were allowed to be blacksmiths if their husbands had trained them to be blacksmiths. And if they were widowed. Which is the reason why they have that line in there when she says, Oh, my husband, whenever he died. And also, they were not allowed to make armor. Which is the reason why she's so angry and so determined to make better armor. Because she has that line saying... Did they say that I couldn't do this because I'm a woman? He, they'd want to play into this a little bit. But that is an actual fact at, of the time. And she makes it so personal because she really wanted to put her emblem on there so that if anybody does like the armor, they can know who to go to. And just to unknowingly, uh, <laughs> director uh, Brian, he didn't put that in there because of Phil Knight, who was the CEO of... Nike at the time. He just put it on there and he didn't have permission at all. But 
Phil Knight was a huge fan of the movie, and he gave him the okay anyways. He didn't even think anything about it. <laughs> so, uh, and that character, Kate, is played by Laura Frazier. She's a big-time whistler in real life. She's uh, amongst the professional whistlers in the professional whistling community, and she wanted to feature some of her whistling in this movie. So she does. And she also is very good at spitting. Now, she's not like a competitive spitter, which that is a real thing, but she wanted to have a scene where they all get together and spit. They actually did write it out that there was a spitting contest and she wins, but they didn't get a chance to shoot it because the movie went not over budget, but they just didn't have the time to shoot it. I think that would have been pretty funny. What do you think about having a professional spitting <laughs> sequence? It would have been funny. I mean, it would have fitted the, the time this movie played. <laughs> there was a spitting scene in Titanic, and that's the reason why Brian said that he kind of didn't want to put it in there was because that scene when Jack is showing Rose how to spit like a man. And it looked cute in that movie, but he felt that it, it was just too soon to add another spitting scene. But While we're talking about all the jousting, so when they made this movie, they actually did a real jousting contest because they tried to fake it, but they couldn't. It just didn't look right. And so they had stuntmen who actually did that. This is just crazy to think of. I mean, of course, what they did is they made the lances not as strong as they were back then. They were whole and they didn't have actual splitters. They used things. I read in one article, I'm honestly not sure if that's true, but I read that they used uncooked pasta because it looked like splitters. <laughs> I, would not, um, I would not be surprised. <laughs> I would think that that would be a little bit light in color. But then again, I don't know. Uh, Lighting-wise, if you did have uncooked pasta and threw it in the air, that probably would look very much like that, but it all depends on lighting. They did hollow out the jousts, and they scored them, and then they shoved them with a bunch of splinters, so that way, when they hit, they just look like a big uh, explosion right there. <laughs> and they brought in a professional jouster. I didn't know that this exists, but he apparently worked in the Excalibur Hotel in Las Vegas. Wow. And so they flew him in to train all the stunt people. And they actually had injuries. Like Heath Ledger said in an interview that at first the actors really wanted to do their own scenes and wanted to do some of the stunts, but they didn't allow them. And then later on he saw a stuntman like having his jaw ripped open when they um, <sighs> had this and he needed 15 stitches and stuff. And so then he was like, well, I understand why, they, why we're not allowed to do these on our own. Oh, God, yeah, these, these stunt guys got the hell beat out of them. There was even stunt horses in the scene where the horse that falls down, whenever they're jousting, the horse falls down and falls over the fence. That was actually planned and written in the script. And that was a stunt horse from Spain. And that was balsam wood so that it would break easily. But that looks like it wasn't supposed to happen, but it was actually planned out very well. In general, they used horses mostly from a special breed in in the Czech Republic, which were like these huge horses. Because when you imagine a knight on a horse and you have like a smaller horse, it would just wouldn't look right. So they used these big horses, which were actually not riding horses. And so they had to train them. And it was t really difficult in times to get them to do something because... Just imagine a horse runs towards another horse. It's just a natural thing to yeah. not do this. Barney, who was the horse that was mainly used for Heath Ledger in this movie, was discovered at a local club in Prague called the Horseshoe. And apparently their big thing is that they bring a horse in while they DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find this Horseshoe Club anymore online. It may have shut down, but that's how they found the main horse that's in this movie. In general, this movie was shot completely on location mm -hmm. in the Czech Republic, and they built the whole scenery. They built in a couple of weeks. Twelve weeks. 
Yes, and this is just incredible. And the most expensive shot in the movie, which didn't involve very many actors, actually just one actor, is that big overhead shot that you see of the whole town. And that is not CGI, which most people would have thought that it would have been easier and maybe less expensive to just have it, shoot it on a green screen and then CGI it all in, but they wanted to have authenticity. So that whole town is actually built. That's a real town. During that first jousting match, Keith Sewell, who's not related to Rufus, was the Steadicam operator, and he was on a wire, and he goes flying in behind the jousters, and then you see the collide, and he was right there when that happened. Brian calls him the, quote, bravest man in the movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> just a, if they would have missed the target, because you have to imagine, they're on horseback. They have these jousts that are... How long would you say? 15, 20 feet long? And they have to hit a target that's roughly 10 inches. That ain't much. If they miss and hit him, good night. <laughs> all these jousting uh, matches were like big events. And they toured all over Europe. This is what we show in like small sequences. And in one of the towns, or I think they have it all the time, but they have a dance in the evening where Heath Ledger didn't want to go to, sorry, not Heath Ledger, but William, his character. And, but Jocelyn asks him, so they train him to dance, which is like a really funny scene. And then when you're at the dance, you have this more medieval sounding song, which then moves into David Bowie's Golden Years. To which they got David Bowie's personal permission to do. Carter Bowell was the person who did the score and was for him he said it was kind of difficult because the whole dance was choreographed and filmed on a certain tempo and he had to smooth it all in but even David Bowie came by and wanted to hear what they made out of it and originally the song that they were going to use was Get Down Tonight by Casey and the Sunshine Band but Heath Ledger really didn't like that idea to follow up that scene, we see Adamar, he gets angry and leaves. We don't find out what happens to him after that. But if you watch the deleted scenes, we find out that Adamar goes outside and we find out his deep confession, which is what, Miriam? He's tone deaf. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the reason why he says, I never cared much for music and I don't care much for dancing. So he's not actually just a jerk jerk. He has a reason for being a jerk. He doesn't get why everybody else is so happy about this music. But I guess he could kind of get off his high horse about it. <laughs> so he then goes to the other townspeople and he throws them some food. He throws money to them because he wants them to cheer for him while he's in this battle. And that song, um, sorry, Golden Years was supposed to be playing during that song. It didn't match at all, which is the reason why they scrapped it. It was either that or they have to reshoot the whole thing. Brian says in the commentary that if you, if you listen to Get Down Tonight and that scene... It'll match up perfectly. The outfits that they are wearing. Did you notice what he's wearing whenever he got, whenever Roland said, was it Roland or what, who says, he's wearing green. Oh, it was Roland. Yeah, he so, sues it out of wherever they sleep in, out of yep. the tents. <laughs> it's made out of their tents. <laughs> <laughs> if you look closely, you can notice that it's not quite the same material, but it is the same color. And the reason being, Brian says, eh, what do you want me to do? <laughs> he's like, their outfits are supposedly period specific but they're only altered slightly according to brian he talked to and brian and the costume designer they said they wanted to make the outfits look good and close to period specific but brian said he wanted to make the actors look like they were the rolling stones on tour in 1972 <laughs> <laughs> but he also wanted people to look at the clothing and say i could wear this in my everyday life 
Of course, we all remember in the early 2000s, whenever the the 1370s outfit craze took over. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we were all wearing these outfits. But they are kind of cool outfits, though. I mean, I'll admit, I would wear those shirts. Actually, I do wear a lot of linen, especially in the, in the summer months. As Miriam can tell you, I did just drop some serious money on a whole linen collection. They're not bad clothes. I mean, I think they look fine. And then over the whole summer, Sir Edward sends Adamar to a war so that Ulrich really wins all the tournaments. He's really establishing his name, but he just wants to fight Adamar because his goal in life now is to fight Adamar. <laughs> and so this whole movie leads towards the end where they come back to London so originally they are from London and we learned that everyone hasn't been there in years. William for the longest. They're really excited about this. And then they're riding into the city, like all the knights and all the people are out and cheering. And back whenever he was, I think, seven years old, his father brought William to these and told him that he can change his stars. He can become whatever he wants to become. And so now they're switching to another boy who's sitting exactly in the spot where he sat. Mm. And this is just, I think, beautifully, beautifully established. And while he's in London, he's meeting his father, who's still living there. Like, he didn't know that if he was still alive or not. I mean, you have to imagine back in the day, you didn't write letters or anything. Like, if you're gone for how many years, you don't know. They could have died. Uh, but Adamara recognized this and actually now sees that he's a fraud, Mm. Which, yeah, and ends this whole thing. And so he ends up on the stocks. There was another scene that went along with that where it was called The Cell in Hell, where Adamar is then... Well, the, the scene is briefly in the movie. It was a more extended, but Brian didn't want to put it in. But that's when Adamar is like, no, tells him, I know that you're a phony, etc., etc. Brian decided to take that out of the movie because he felt that it wasn't moving the story along. And I, I agree, but I disagree with him. And the actors actually went to Brian and said, you need to put that scene in there, which is the reason why we briefly see him in the, the hell in the cell. And then he's outside. And then the kid who was now the one waving to him runs up and does what to him, Miriam? He just slaps. <laughs> so it really bothers everybody that he's not actually Ulrich von Lichtenstein, who was actually a real knight from roughly 1200 to 1275. In Murnau, in the Duchy of Styria, located in present-day Austria. He was a knight and author who was said to have had invented the concept of chivalry and courtly love. Piers Courtenay, who was a descendant of Edward I, born in 15th century, Sir Thomas Colville, Prince Edward's disguise, was a knight from the 13th century, and Lord Roger Mortimer was a lover of King Edward II's life wife, Isabel of France, and was hanged 
drawn and quartered by the Black Prince's father, King Edward III. That was the real person <laughs> that he, William Thatcher was claiming to be. The real life uh, Ulrich von Lichtenstein was a real knight, and he was a regular jouster. He boasted that he would he would give a golden ring away to any knight who would break his lance on his armor, and supposedly he gave away 271 rings, but he still remained undefeated. That's according to IMDb. Most of what we know about Ulrich is from his autobiography, the, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess this up, Fraud, Fraudendist? Fraudendist. <laughs> Which is a rough translation of the service of ladies. I don't know if I could really trust a man who wrote a book that he was uh, the, the the server of ladies. But he was, he was really crazy, this real Ulrich. At least I read that he toured through Europe in the um, at, dressed as Queen Venus. Like he had a silk gown over his armor and then he had long, long fake hair underneath his helmet and so on. So he just tried to be this... Intimidating type of character, I guess, is yes. the best way to put it. I guess, yeah. The real-life Edward Prince of Wales is often referred to as the Black Prince, who is Adamar's character. He, There is no real record of him using that title in his lifetime, but roughly 150 years after his death, they, that name kind of got tacked onto him. But he was known as Edward of Woodstock, um, named after where he was born. And the name seems to have been, the Black Prince seems to have been created or distinguished over the years because he was so harsh and cruel to people. Uh, the usual explanation behind his, behind his name comes from his black helmet and that his, he liked to wear it black a lot. Although it has been suggested that he is black hearted or merciless on the battlefield. As we know, this is all just a fairy tale or a story, so we can't really say it, what is the it real... It really is hard to, ch to tell. I mean, we're talking yeah. about things that's from 900 plus years ago, and records are spotty at best. Yes. I found that Prince Edward was actually Prince Edward in the movie, and that Adamar was based on the Duke of Anjou, where which his real name was Louis I. Well, you might think this is because Prince Edward actually sent him, Adamar, back to the field. And the thing was back then that you had a hundred-year war between France and England. And as part of the treaty, certain French nobles agreed to enter custodial care in England, which basically was they were collateral for France paying its debt. And so Prince Adamar had, although basically Adamar has like a French name, the Anjou, he had power over him and could send him wherever he wanted him to have him out of the way. Dang. <laughs> yeah, I, as I said, I don't know if that is true, but that's just something else, something else I found about that. And then Jocelyn... Jocelyn presumably was the daughter of King Charles I of Navarre, so she would have been the princess of Navarre, which would make sense because Adamar tries to... Uh, uh, at one point, Adamar says that he started negotiations with her father for her to become his wife, which would help him because this would bring something between England and France. So we're, we're, at, the final, we're at the showdown between Adamar and William. What we skipped over is... As you said, William, because while he's on the stocks, Prince Edward makes him a knight. And I love this. Because usually, I mean, when you watch this movie... Wait, wasn't Indian, that, was he the Black Prince or was Adamar the Black Prince? I think Ed, I think Prince Edward was the Black Prince. Dang, man. Okay, so whatever I said, apply it to the guy who knights <laughs> William Thatcher. <laughs> 
Holy smokes. There's too much there's too much royalty going around in this movie. There's a, there's just so much information about this film that it's it's easy to lose track of. So I I love this because when you watch this movie or honestly when I, when you said this to me when we were watching it or after it, well the ending will be he will win, right? But he does not only win against Adamar in the end, he is becoming a knight, so he actually really changes stars and he will be Sir William. And what I said before, this is really because how he behaved throughout the movie in his character. Like he actually, he fought against against Edward when no one else would. He is a noble person, although he's born poor. He is a noble person. He behaves knightly. And so Edward returns the favor of making him a knight. And I just love it. And everyone is cheering. And Jocelyn actually gets his father so that he can hear when they announce this is Sir William Thatcher. And they have to put in that, that line where William says, I grew up a stone's throw away from here, because that would explain why William's father could hear all of, all of everything happening, because he says, I've heard the name Auric multiple times. That's how we know that. William's father, John Thatcher, is played by Chris Casanova, who was in the very first thing that Brian had directed. It wasn't the first thing that he had written, but it was the first thing he had directed. And it was a... Yet another alumni from Tales from the Crypt. And he said that he was scared. Brian said that he was scared to death while he was making that one. It was the episode was a slight case of murder that came out in 1996. Not quite sure if anybody remembers this. This was in the end of Tales from the Crypt, that series, whenever they went to England. And the episodes were hits or misses. There was no in between. This episode was more of a comedy. Uh, It's basically a game of cat and mouse that ensues between the female mystery novelist and her jealous former husband after he accuses her of having an affair with their neighbor's son. It's more of a comedy than anything else. I think that it's an okay episode. I don't think it's a great one, but it's called the worst of the Tales from the Crypt episodes online. And by genresnaps.com, it was nominated as the worst episode of Tales from the Crypt. But Brian said when he was making this, he was scared to death. And Chris was actually really good to him. He plays the husband. And he was very helping and he helped him out with the other actors and was say, was showing him what to do as a director. So he said, I'm going to remember you if I, if I ever become big. And he said, don't worry about it, man. And then, of course, Brian's career did take off. Let's not forget that he did do L.A. Confidential. He wrote, actually, he had a very, um, his, his 1997 was a very interesting year because he was one of the few um, people, he was actually the fourth person in the history of film to ever get the Oscar and the Razzie. For, he got the Oscar for L.A. Confidential, which he wrote, and The Postman, which if we all remember the post-apocalyptic movie about Kevin Costner as a traveling postman delivering mail, the three-hour epic, which did not go very well with the critics. He was the writer of that movie, and he was the fourth person in Razzie history, in, in Hollywood history, actually, to voluntarily accept both statues. And he keeps both statues. Supposedly, this is from what I've read online, Brian said that he keeps both statues on the same mantle to remind him of how crazy Hollywood really is. In the same year... He got the worst and the best. <laughs> but he started out like a lot of other writers and directors when, while doing horror films. His very first thing that he ever wrote was Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. This was before Part 5, The Dream Child, 
which was the most bonkers out of all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But then he moved on to do 976 Evil, which is one of my personal favorite horror films. And I actually met the prop master on that movie, on a movie I had worked on years later. And when he found out that I was a fan of 976 Evil, the first thing he said was, I can't believe you watched this shit. <laughs> but Brian then moved on to do more movies. He did 976 Evil 2. He did Assassins. Uh, he did L.A. Confidential and The Postman, which we had previously said. And then he did a really awesome movie, which I don't think gets the recognition that it deserves, which was the Mel Gibson revenge film, Payback. Um, I don't know if you know this one, Miriam, but it's Mel Gibson. He's shot, presumably left for dead, and then he goes on a rampage. I think it's New York to get his money back. I believe it's $70,000 that he's owed. And there's a lot of great lines of dialogue on that, especially whenever he shoots the mafia boss's luggage, which is alligator luggage. And he says... That it's seventy. He's like, we'll get you your one million dollars, and he's like, it's seventy thousand. I want to say seventy thousand. I'm just going to say seventy thousand. So I apologize if I'm wrong. So he's like, it's seventy thousand. He's like seventy thousand dollars. Shit, my suits cost more than that. <laughs> in in an interview with the German magazine I mentioned earlier, he was asked why he did not just stay a screenwriter and why he wanted to become a director. And he said that it was self-defense. <laughs> he said he didn't want other directors to mess up his scripts. But he said that he didn't see himself as a director, more like a screenwriter who stays on board longer than usual. And for him, he said directing is easier than writing because he can ask everyone for assistance, like his camera guy, the designers, and so on. And he did. Uh, Richard Gruteau, I believe is how you say his last name. He was the cinematographer on this, and he started out in 1980 shooting a bunch of various different movies and short films. Eventually, he got the film Shakespeare in Love, to which he got an Oscar nomination for. But he lost to, uh, I apologize, but Janusz Kaminski for Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan got a lot of awards, but then Saving, um, sorry, Shakespeare in Love got the other awards that Saving Private Ryan did not get, most famously Best Picture of the Year. But he asked for a lot of people's help on this, specifically from his cinematographer, his producers, uh, Todd Black, who's, who did movies such as Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, the Sylvester Stallone classic where his mother cleans his gun with <laughs> soap and a sponge. And he looks at it, he picks up his gun and the water comes running out. Uh, Dunstan Checks In, which was the movies of the 90s. These movies have really not gained recognition over the years but there was a ton of movies in the 90s where you had dogs doing human things or animals doing human things and monkeys were not off limits dunstan checks in which is about a monkey that rents a hotel room todd black went on to do a family thing he did this movie then he did the taking of pelham one two three sex tape equalizer southpaw magnificent seven and he's currently working on masters of the universe which i'm interested in seeing because i was a huge he-man fan growing up as a little boy and the Lucy and Desi movie, which I'm really interested in seeing because that's going to be a hell of a good movie. <laughs> Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, wow, those people were, they were comedy titans of their time. There is nothing that could have stopped them. It was also um, produced by Tim Van Rellum, who started out in the 70s by doing a documentary called Born to Boogie, which was the Ringo Starr documentary about Mark Boland of T-Rex. Sadly, Mark had passed away in 1977 at the age of 29 due to a car crash, but it has a lot of footage that was taken by Mark himself. Mark, who was kind of the creator of glam rock, 
uh, his music is used in a lot of movies up until this day. 20th Century Boy is quite possibly one of the most famous songs of all time. He went on then to produce Snow White, A Tale of Terror, which the 90s, again, there was a bunch of movies that came out that were fairy tales, but they were made to be horror films or action films. Heath Ledger was also a part of this action when he did the Grimm, uh, was it called the Grimm Tales? Brothers Grimm. Grimm. That was part of that, that story as well. He then went on to do Ravenous, which was a cannibal, great cannibal movie. This movie, and then he went to do the Nativity Story. He's currently working on another film right now. And so, as we all expected, he wins. He is Sir William now, but he wins. And he actually was heard by Adamar because he, let's call it, improved his lands. And so, he takes off the armor, then he runs against Adamar. He screams his name, William. And then he shoves him from his horse. Adamar falls from his horse. And then you see a sequence which is supposed to be something that goes on in Adamar's head. But now we're coming back to the quote I had earlier. Because you see all the five of them coming over him, one head after the other, and telling Adamar, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have (laughs) been found wanting. And so this is like a perfect circle. This is, as I said, one of our favorites of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the shots in the end of the movie are kind of, kind of uh, milky looking. But that's because on the last day of shooting, the camera assistant had actually dropped the film can and it was accidentally exposed, but they didn't tell anyone. At the end of that um, jousting match, the piece of the lance actually flew off and nailed the Steadicam operator in the head. <laughs> To shoot it again, he said, F that, I'm getting the helmet. He straps on a helmet. He's ready to rock and roll. And the director said, hey, we're, we're actually not going to shoot it again. You're good. It's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Brian said at the end of this movie that the moral of the movie is finding out who you are and then sticking true to yourself. And changing your stars. <laughs> right before they shot any of the ADR for this movie, Heath Ledger and Brian Helgeland actually wanted to show producers what they were doing, the, jou- the jousting match. So well, they, were, they were showing them the jousting match with broomsticks, and Heath Ledger a- accidentally smacked Brian square in the jaw and knocked out his front teeth. So if you watch the behind-the-scenes featurette with the introduction of Brian Helgeland, you'll notice that he's missing his front teeth. And he says this in the, in the movie. He says, before anybody's thinking what happened to my teeth, let me explain this. I just wanted to touch on a few moments. There's a moment whenever the guy says, well, the, the Pope is French in the, in the bar when they're taunting each other. Pope wasn't actually French until 1378. So that was a good number of years mm-hmm. after this movie had taken place. But no one ever seemed to notice. That whole moment where you see Jocelyn and William in the cathedral and it's one long three-minute take, that was done in order to save money for production. They roughly saved 130000 with that scene. Brian said, I did this because they told me we were we needed to save money. So I said, fine, this whole scene is going to be one take and we'll just grab two tight shots of the actors. We'll condense uh, what would have been a two or three day shoot into one day. And the guy who runs up to them, the actor who walks up to them and shushes them, he was not aware that they were shooting one take. So after they were done, he walked up to Brian and said, I think you forgot to shoot my close up. And he said, no, actually we didn't. <laughs> Uh, the scene where Heath loses all the matches because he's proving his love to Jocelyn, or Jocelyn says to him, you can prove your love to me by purposely losing your ma- this match. This is taken from the book of Courtly Love, which is a series of different uh, romantic tales, and they say that you have to act against yourself to prove your love. The book is a treasury of French medieval lore, combined the tales 
of Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan and Isdol, and several songs and poems with 60 accompanying illustrations with classic manuscripts and romantic art, according to Amazon. The part where Jocelyn tells William to prove his love and by doing his worst is in the tournament appears to be taken directly from Guinevere and Lancelot's romance in Chrétien de Troyes' 12th century poem, Lancelot, the King of the Cart, which was the first introduction to Lancelot as a main character. It is unknown exactly when the poem was composed, only that it would have been between 1175 and 1181. Most likely this was in 1177. After getting smacked over and over again, you see the joust flying at the main character at the characters of Kate, Watt, and Roland, and Kate grabs the lance. And you, it's only quick, but it's pretty neat because she's just standing there looking so bored of him get, of William getting beat to death with these jousts. She grabs the lance when it's thrown right at him. Stupidly, Brian says in the commentary, I asked her if she could catch. <laughs> <laughs> and then we see them using a real machine. This was a real machine that was used in the days to pop uh, arms and legs that were knocked out of socket. I, I didn't know what was going on in that scene. I, just, I thought it was a stretcher for his muscles, but that's actually a real machine that whenever his arm got popped out of socket. The scene whenever William C. meets John and he says, what's wrong with him? And the, the little girl says, he's blind, sir. That little girl was supposed to be a little boy. But after they auditioned a ton of boys, Brian didn't like the way any of them read that line. So they auditioned a little girl, and she read it exactly like he wanted to. So he said, that's the person we want to use. John is mending a fishing net because Brian said that he saw his father and his grandfather doing this growing up. So he said, I know this actually happened in history, so I'll make it happen here. But how did this movie do when it first came out? This movie had a budget of $65 million, which is roughly $94 million in 2020 money. In the U.S., it, it grossed $56 million, which is roughly $81 million. But worldwide, it grossed $117 million, which is about $169.4 million. Why did this movie not do so well in the box office? It took off really well with the female audiences when it came out on DVD, or VHS and DVD. Reynolds were through the roof. But it didn't do so hot in the theaters. Miriam, if you had to guess, why do you think? Because it was 2001. That's a good guess, but it came out in May. I don't remember, but I know I wasn't in the movie theater myself. <laughs> well, this was this movie came out right before the uh, before all the summer blockbusters came out, and it was re released on May 11th. Although it is on IMDb, it says May 13th. I found other sources to say May 11th, and the reason why it didn't do as hot as predicted. And it didn't have much to do with Heath Ledger. According to Pete Travers, he didn't really enjoy this movie that much. He said that the movie has music that is not period-specific. It doesn't go so well. And the leading man is not a star actor yet. However, I don't think that had much to do with it. The movie came out right after The Mummy Returns. <laughs> which came out on May 4th. And then right after A Knight's Tale came out, Shrek came out. <laughs> so... Pearl Harbor then came out on May 25th, and every one of those movies I said were massive blockbusters in the theaters, and that is even before the blockbusters even came out. So this Knight's Tale really kind of got pushed to the side. It didn't get its due diligence, in my opinion, but it did really well on, on DVD and VHS rentals. And people still love this movie to this day. On IMDb, it gets a 6.9. It gets a meta score of 56, which is pretty darn good. On Rotten Tomatoes, they gave it a 58%, which means it's rotten. I don't think that's fair. And But with the audience, it gets a 79%. Did the critics actually like this movie? 
They were split. Roger Ebert really enjoyed this movie. He gave it three stars, and he said, The movie has an innocence and charm that, that grows on you. It's a reminder of the days before films got so cynical and unrelentingly violent. A Knight's Tale is whimsical, silly, and romantic, and seeing it after The Mummy Returns is like taking Tums after eating The Mummy. And he gave The Mummy Returns two stars, so he wasn't a big fan of that movie. Bob Graham of the San Francisco Gate did not like this movie at all. He said, Helgelin won an Oscar for writing... LA, the L.A. Confidential screenplay. A Knight's Tale is a wrong side of the track story from a writer who lets people know he used to make his living on fishing boats. The movie should appeal to anyone who has a soft spot for or identifies with upstarts and fakes. I strongly disagree with that. I like this movie a lot. I found it very enjoyable. I saw this movie when it first came out and then I hadn't seen it again until the other day whenever Miriam decided that we were going to do this for the podcast. And I I instantly liked it again. I thought it was a lot of fun. I love seeing the action. I love seeing a young Heath Ledger who was 22 at the time. I just love seeing all these different characters interacting with each other. It looked like they had a blast while making it. And I think that really does bring a movie together. When you see people having fun while they're making the movie, it really does add to the film. Yes, I agree. And I read online that they really had a lot of fun. I don't know if that's true, but I read that Helgeland brought all of them to the Czech Republic two weeks before they started to shoot just to like go over the script and do things. But they actually just partied for two weeks, yeah. which basically, but which brought them all together, which made them all friends. And so everything was just easy. And they said that the days were really hard and really long, but they just by having fun, it was just really good. And For example, Heath Ledger, he had worked 18 months straight when The Night's Tale was filmed. Or I, I would say at the end of Night's Tale was 18 months. But that's a really long time. So after this, he just he took a break. And he was asked in an interview if he was like intimidated by doing the first movie where he is the real star. Let's call yeah. it that of the movie. I'd say that, that yeah, he, that, this is the first one he did. And he said that he was not intimidated doing this movie, but whenever he saw the movie posters with his big face on it, then he said he was starting to get intimidated. Like, oh, I didn't realize you were going to do that. <laughs> but Heath Ledger, he started out way back in the day, and he took acting as an elective in high school. He went to the Guilford Grammar School in Guilford, a suburb of Perth. And he did that because it was either acting or cooking. And he said he couldn't see himself as a cook. He eventually got the role of uh, Snowy Bowles in the television show Sweat in 1996. He was given two characters to, to be because the, the producers loved him when he came in for his audition. He was given the character of Snowy Bowles, who was a gay cyclist. And he was offered the other role, which was a swimmer. And he decided to take on the cyclist because he said it would make him stand out as an actor. That if he could do something that was versatile right off the bat... That would really show that he had the guts and what he could do to do this, to do to be an actor. He then moved on to do the movie Two Hands. That movie got him the role to be in this. And then, oh, sorry, that movie, Two Hands, then got him the recognition to be in the movie Ten Things I Hate About You, which then got him to be in this movie. And then the rest takes from there. He got his Oscar nomination for Brokeback Mountain, which I think he should have gotten because I, I love that movie. It's so beautiful. But he eventually then got the Oscar win for... The Dark Knight. And sadly, he passed away of a drug overdose shortly before getting that Oscar win. Mark Addy, who plays Roland, he was in a bunch of various TV and movies as a day player for a majority of his career until 1997 when he landed the role of Dave in The Full Monty. 
he playing the lovable fat guy. <laughs> That's a funny movie. If, if anyone out there hasn't seen this or has forgotten that this movie even existed, strongly recommend it. It came out, I remember when it came out, it came out the same time as Boogie Nights. So there was a big demand for male nudity in the mid-90s. Alan Tudyk playing what? We all know Alan Tudyk. His career has been all over the place. He's most famous for playing voiceover actors. And he did a lot of voiceovers in this for the crowds that are shouting. He improv the line, your entrails will be your extrails, whenever he's talking to Chaucer in, Chaucer in the beginning. And Brian said, well, I didn't want to steal that line, so I wound up just hiring him. <laughs> James Purefoy, who played Colville, or the Black Knight, or the Black Prince, I'm sorry, he was voted the sexiest man in the movie by the female crew. <laughs> That's because he is a very handsome and charming man known in England, and his nickname in England is Pure Sex. <laughs> and on the commentary, he was pushed by, by Brian and Paul Bettany to be the next James Bond. The character of Ruin the King of Arms, uh, the guy who did the announcing of all of the matches beforehand, that was Philip Linkowski, who was an expatriate living in Prague. And his conditions in being this movie was that he had to have this job because it would keep him in the country. Because in order to live in Prague as an expatriate, you have to be constantly working. So during his audition, he said, look, guys, I'm a level with you. I need this to act so I can stay in this country because I've fallen in love with a Prague woman and I need to stay in this country. And it worked out for him. In the commentary, Brian says, I really hope he's still working and I hope that they are married and I hope they're having kids and they're happy. Turns out he still lives there. So <laughs> he's doing quite well. Uh, he's still working and he's still acting to this day. Brian points out in the commentary that he found out that Chaucer is not actually, was not actually a very tall fella. And he was kind of short and a little bit overweight. As Brian, as Brian put it, he was actually a fat, bald dwarf. Uh, they can't really find anything to back this up, but he was most likely a fat guy. Uh, the discovery of Chaucer's bones happened whenever the grave of Robert Browning was dug up and the disco they discovered a five foot six skeleton that did not match Browning. It turns out it was Chaucer. <laughs> uh, there is a running gag in all the all the times whenever they go to a new match, and you see uh, you only see this at the end, which was David Schneider. He's a comedian and writer. Uh, he was supposed to be there's supposed to be a running gag where in every town he's selling different types of relics, but the idea was scrapped because it was what the movie the movie's already a little over tw two hours long, so this had to get scrapped. And they left the last one in because he thought that was the funniest of all of them. But Brian says as a joke, he seemed smarter than me, so I had to cut him out. <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe that's it for me. I really liked this movie a lot, and I'm happy we got to sit down and talk about it. Uh, guys, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see everyone next time. So, see you guys. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. 
Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.